910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. If you'll remember from last week's episode, King Nebuchadnezzar's story in chapter 4 ended with his pride being crushed, but in the end, he praised and glorified God, and God raised him up and restored him. But that's not going to be the case for the king who's the focus of today's episode. Today, we're looking at Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapters 4 and 5 form the middle part of the chiastic structure that we keep talking about. And we came up with an idea for those of you who still might be unsure what a literary chiastic structure looks like. It's not a word we, we use a lot. <laughs> I know. Well, we've been trying to explain it, but it is hard to visualize just from explanation. So we put the chiasm of Daniel chapters 2 through 7 on the homepage of our website, www.proverbs910ministries.com, right beside the current week's episode. So if you're confused about what we're talking about as far as the structure, go ahead and take a look. We've said that a chiastic structure has a main point, and that's right in the center. And right in the very middle of chapters four and five is the line from Daniel 4.37, which says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And that's the central point of chapters two through six. The central point of the chiasm is Daniel 4.37. God is sovereignly in control of everything, and he has the right to humble the most prideful and boastful nations or rulers or people and crush them and to raise up any nation or ruler or person that he pleases. And he is absolutely right and just in doing so. Absolutely. Nebuchadnezzar praised God in the end and was restored. But if his ancestor we're going to talk about today knew anything about that history, which he probably did, he didn't heed the warning. Daniel chapter 5 shows us the emptiness and futility of life without God. It's an important lesson for everyone. So important that God wrote a whole book about it. It's called Ecclesiastes. (laughs) Yes, it is. And it's something that every person needs to learn. You know, Rose, almost every day we wake up with at least one news story of someone famous or rich or powerful who's been humbled and brought down off their lofty perch because of sin. They go out in shame, not glory. But that doesn't have to be the last word. That's right. I mean, just look at recently. Andrew Cuomo just went down in flames because of sexual harassment. Bill Cosby might have seemed to have a bright spot happen in his life when he was let out of prison, but his sin has marred his reputation forever. And we see in Christian circles with pastors and teachers who are hiding an affair, who embezzle money from their ministries, or who go off the rails really badly, sometimes to the point of renouncing their faith. Right. But like King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whose humbling made him turn to God, there are examples of that happening today, too. This is a past one, but Chuck Colson, who was part of the Watergate scandal, fell from his position along with the rest of them. He went to prison, but he ended up turning to God. And God took his shame and his disgrace, and he used it for his, Chuck Colson's good, for the good of other believers, and God used it for his own glory. Yeah, Mr. Colson and Nebuchadnezzar realize that it's God who gets the glory, not us. Chris, the king in today's story never comes to that realization. 
We've titled the episode Going Down in a Blaze of Glory, a term used to describe a final action done in an extraordinary and impressive manner. This king seemed like he was going to go down in a blaze of glory by throwing a very lavish banquet that ended up being the last thing he did. But it was anything but glorious. Unless you consider peeing your pants at a lavish party you're hosting <laughs> a blaze of glory, then no. You this played game, with fire, right? He you did, right? Fire, you your pants. Yeah, that's what I've always heard. <laughs> you know, this king definitely did not go out in any kind of glory. So let's get started. It's the year 539 BC at this point, and the king that we're talking about today is Belshazzar. And I just want to say this, don't confuse that with the Babylonian name Belteshazzar that was given to Daniel. They're very right. similar. They are very similar. All right, so I'll start by reading Daniel 5, verses 1 to 2. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be bought, that the king and the lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So let's stop for a moment and get a picture of this King Belshazzar. Although verse 2 uses the word father for Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar wasn't King Nebuchadnezzar's son. The word father in Aramaic means ancestor or predecessor. King Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus and was his father's co-regent when he was away from the city. Nabonidus, the father, spent the last 10 years of Babylonian rule in a distant part of the land, forced from having any true power because he didn't line up politically or religiously with the mainstream majority of Babylonians. So his son Belshazzar is in charge now. Belshazzar may have been acting ruler from the capital city of Babylon for about the last 10 years of Babylonian history, but he wasn't too impressive. In fact, his father is commonly referred to as the last king of Babylon, not him. And except for the biblical account, Belshazzar the son doesn't even show up in historical records until some clay cylinders were excavated in 1854 that mentioned him. And his name was confirmed later in 1882 when some ancient text called the Nabonidus Chronicle was translated. Until then, people questioned whether the Bible and the book of Daniel were wrong. And we're telling you all this so that you get a picture of what King Belshazzar was like. Like you said, Rose, not too impressive. And just before Belshazzar became king, Cyrus the Great of Persia came to power, conquered the Medes in 550 BC, and now he was marching on taking more lands, including those of the Babylonian Empire. Cyrus of Persia was headed for the city of Babylon. In fact, he'd already started besieging it by the time of the account that we're talking about today. The city was thought to be impregnable because of its walls and the fact that it was surrounded by the Euphrates River. But being besieged still had to be somewhat disconcerting for those inside. I would say you'd have to be insane not to have some doubts about whether you're going to survive. Now, Belshazzar wasn't very impressive, but that doesn't stop him from being proud. So what does a prideful king like Belshazzar do when his enemy's on the doorstep? Does he prepare the city for the attack? Does he ration the food? Does he shore up the walls? No, he decides to throw a lavish feast for himself. A thousand of his noblemen, his wives and his concubines. Sounds like a lot of politicians. Sure does. Chris, let's read on. All right. Verses three and four go on to say, 
Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That's the end of the two verses. King Belshazzar thumbs his nose at God and brings out the very things used in Jerusalem for worshiping God. And then he and his company drink from them and praise the gods, little g, of what their drinking utensils are made of. Here's what John Calvin said about Belshazzar. Here we must consider the providence of God in arranging the time of events so that the impious, when the time of their destruction has come, cast themselves headlong of their own accord. This occurred to this wicked king. Wonderful indeed was the stupidity which prepared a splendid banquet filled with delicacies while the city was besieged. For Cyrus had begun to besiege the city for a long time with a large army. The wretched king was already half a captive, and yet, as if in spite of God, he provided a rich banquet and invited a thousand guests. I love that quote. Me too. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Belshazzar's feast is about to be cut short. I'll read the next three verses. Verses five to seven say, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. You know, commentator Ian DeGood says in his commentary, most probably this does not mean that his legs gave away as most English translations render it, but rather that he lost control of his bodily functions with a wet patch appearing <laughs> under his chair. I wonder if it was just a wet patch. Yeah, I have to wonder, <laughs> don't you? We did warn chapter five was even crazier. King Belshazzar should be that terrified enough for that to happen for sure. I think anyone would for seeing a hand writing on the wall. But notice that his heart is still hardened. He doesn't fall to his knees in repentance. People can believe that God exists. They can even witness miraculous things happening and still never turn to God. We saw it with Nebuchadnezzar in the beginning. Look at Pharaoh, the Pharisees, and many of those who followed Jesus while he was on earth. Absolutely. So let's stop here for a moment. This is God's finger writing on the plaster wall. Let's talk about a few other times in the Bible that the finger of God is mentioned. God wrote the law on the stone tablets according to Exodus 32, 16, and it says written by the finger of God. It's the Ten Commandments, something that the apostles call the ministry of death because we can never keep that law. The writing on this wall is a death sentence too. As we're going to read in a moment. And there's another correlation with the finger of God here. In part one of this series, we talked about how God let Pharaoh's magicians mimic some of the miraculous things that Moses was doing, but then stop them from being able to do more. If you remember, their excuse for not being able to was, in their own words, this is the finger of God doing it. This is the finger of God was actually their words. That was not too long before God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And here we are again, seeing God's finger at work. It's been almost 70 years since God's people have been exiled in Babylon. So what's going to happen soon? God's going to bring his people out of exile from Babylon. So cool, right? Yes, very cool. So the writing is on the wall. 
And King Belshazzar calls in his enchanters, his Chaldeans and astrologers, and offers them clothes of purple, a gold necklace, and becoming third highest ruler in the kingdom to whoever can interpret the writing. But none of the pagans could understand the writing. And the king was, it says, greatly alarmed, and his lords were perplexed, according to the text. So notice who the king calls to tell him what the writing means. Enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Why not call Daniel or any of the men who worship the one true God? It would have been unlikely that he had never heard of Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego either. Could it be that he wanted someone to give him a quote-unquote good report about what was written on the wall? That would have been a normal human response. Our default sin nature only wants to hear good. That's why false teachers and false prophets were so popular and are so popular today. Absolutely. And this guy had just used the holy vessels brought from the temple to drink from. We said earlier he thumbed his nose at God. They all did. If you're not familiar with that term, it means that you're mocking someone. I'm sure Belshazzar does not want to hear a true report about the writing on the wall. <laughs> if you had just mocked God and then that happened, you would not want to hear what God had to say. But God doesn't leave his word untranslated. I'll read the next part, verses 10 through 12. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Little, she uses little g. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. So the queen is most likely Belshazzar's mother or grandmother. His other wives seem to be already at the banquet. She would have been familiar with Daniel, who was about 80 years old by now. She points out your father, your father the king, put this guy Daniel in charge of guys like the ones you called. And she has no doubt that Daniel can interpret the writing. Out of reverence to her and to Nebuchadnezzar, and because of the things she just pointed out, the king really has no choice but to send for Daniel, whether he wants to or not. <laughs> yeah, he kind of <laughs> has to. You know, the queen mother said that Daniel had the spirit of the holy gods, little g, living in him. She almost had the right words. Daniel had the holy spirit. The pagans couldn't understand the words, but Daniel could because he had the spirit of God. This kind of like believers can understand the Bible because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and unbelievers can't understand the Bible because they don't have the Holy Spirit. That's a great comparison. Daniel's offered the same gifts as the others if he can interpret. Kings would often try to sway a message or prophecy using finances to do it. Like with King Balak offering Balaam riches in Numbers 22, 15 to 41. You can read that story. Favorite talking donkey story. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. But Daniel refuses the gifts as payment, even though the king still ends up giving them to him. Right. Instead of diving right into the interpretation, Daniel starts out by schooling Belshazzar and his company with a history lesson. I'll read what he said. O king most high, 
God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Daniel's speech shows the futility of King Belshazzar's life by reminding everyone of the greatness of his ancestor, King Nebuchadnezzar, but never leaving out the fact that it's God who's sovereign over it all. Belshazzar would have known this history. In fact, they all would have known about Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, Belshazzar and the rest of the people there should have been humble. Their false gods hadn't helped them to this point. Most of their country had already been conquered. King Cyrus of Persia was at their doorstep. And even when fingers appear out of nowhere and write a cryptic message on the wall, they're still not on their knees. Crazy. So I'll continue reading. I'm going to start at verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of this house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mini, Mini, Tekel and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, Mini. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. King Belshazzar gave to Daniel everything he promised him. It was pretty worthless though. Verse 30 says, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And just to point out, Mini is there twice, the one where his kingdom's going to come to an end. Whenever you see something written twice in scripture, pay attention. Yep. Because it is certainly going to happen. And God means business. So King Cyrus, ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire, conquered Babylon that night. His army dug canals along the Euphrates River, Babylon's natural defense, and emptied much of the river into a basin, making it shallow enough for them to wade across and enter the city. That's how they did it. I want to clear something up. The text says Darius the Mede received the kingdom. So King Cyrus of Persia made Darius the Mede, also known as Guberu, governor over Babylon after they conquered it. Guberu was born in 601-600 BC, which would make him 62 years old when they invaded Babylon and conquered it, according to the Nabonidus Chronicle that we mentioned earlier. That's a clay cuneiform tablet, and it's in a British museum now. So we have those facts. And some takeaways for us, 
the defiling use of the temple goblets is like taking the good gifts that God has given us, like food, family, work, and sex, and distorting them in ways that blatantly oppose God's teaching. And no matter what high and lofty position we might think we're in, our lives are totally in God's hands. He can do whatever he wants with any of us at any moment, maybe even tonight. That's right. The judgment of Belshazzar is a picture of coming judgment for everyone. If you remain impenitent, you will suffer eternally. No one is without excuse because nature itself tells us about God, according to Romans 1, 18 to 20, which says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, by whom their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All of us need to take our sin seriously. But if you're living your life blatantly mocking God, if you've twisted the things of God intended to be good and use them in ways God never intended, and if you've never repented of those things, take a lesson from King Belshazzar. God is long-suffering and patient for sure, but his patience has limits. Noah called for repentance for 120 years, and then the flood came. Second Chronicles 36.15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. God provided a way of salvation through his son, Jesus. If you turn to God and ask for forgiveness and trust that Jesus already took the penalty for your sin in your place, you'll be saved. And if you think there's no way you'd ever be able to live differently than you are now, God will help you. He's going to sanctify you, give you new desires, and the Holy Spirit is going to be indwelling in you, and that's why you'll be able to change. It's not going to be easy, but it can happen. But you have to turn to God and you have to ask for forgiveness. Amen to that. And that's where we have to end today. If you have any questions about God or salvation or any of the things that we've talked about, email us at Proverbs910Ministries at gmail.com or private message us through our social media. Or check out our website, www.Proverbs910Ministries.com to find out more information or find out more about resources. Thanks for listening. Have a blessed day, everyone.